Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Preston Pish, financial analyst, podcaster, and of course, Bitcoiner. We talk about Evergrande, Contagion, and the potential for this to be another Lehman. Preston also tells us about the Chinese emphasis on real estate as a store of value, how other real estate development companies might also be in trouble, and how this whole thing might resolve. Preston pays attention to global trends. He's been studying the financial industry and recognizes patterns. And when he says that Evergrande looks like a big deal, I pay attention. The whole thing seems like a canary in a coal mine, and hopefully our discussion will shed some light for you. Preston Pish, how's everything going, man? Going great. It was great seeing you in Texas recently. <laughs> yeah, Texas is a little bit better than a lot of other states. So yeah, definitely good. Yeah, and remind me, where are you again? So I'm just down in the southeast. I'm a southerner. Uh-huh. Nice. And and things are reasonable there, I suspect. Yes. Yeah, no, it's it's great where I'm at. I look at other parts of the country and it, it's getting a little scary. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So I wanted to have you on again. You're, I think, my second guest that's uh, that's a repeat, in large part because of what's going on in China. Can you describe for my audience what Evergrande is and what's going on with it? Yeah. So I think it's it's full disclosure. I'm not an expert on China. I'm more a finance, you know, equity, Bitcoin kind of guy. But with that said, this is one of those events that I think is so big that, you know, many people in the financial media space are comparing it to the Lehman event back in 2007, 2008 timeframe, being that first thing that could maybe set off a cascading impact into the global economy. And I would agree with that because of the size of, of the company that we're talking about. So mm. when we go into Evergrande and just kind of just try to understand what the company is, the size of it, because I think many people, especially US-based listeners, probably aren't familiar with the company. This is a massive, massive real estate developer inside of China, just to kind of give you this the breadth of how big this is. This is in over 170 cities. They have business in over 170 cities. If you take all the real estate that they're dealing with here, it would take up three-fourths of all of Manhattan in size. Mm-hmm. But that's spread, and I think it's important that people understand that that is spread over 170 cities all over China. So it's not like it's just consolidated in one province. It's literally all over the place. When you look at the size of the company, it's got 123,000 employees. It's second in size based on the the number of employees. There's a company called Vank and then uh, Country Garden that are also comparable in size. But those are the three big developers within China that we're talking about. So when you talk about competition and you talk about how they're not even able to make their coupon payments on their debt, you have to then question, okay, well, if there was that much competition inside of China for this company to be going out that far on the risk side of things Mm. that they're now in debt up to their eyeballs and they can't even make their interest payments. What are those other two competitors in the space looking like as well? And are they next? Because if the competition in China is that fierce for this company to be in this type of situation, you have to obviously wonder where those other companies are at. And I don't have, I don't have a good feel for for what that is. And I think if if people were wanting to do maybe more research after this recording, that would probably be, be where I would go next is looking into those two companies. The other thing that I would say 
this is a massive, uh, as far as the financials on it, you got 300 billion, and this is all in US dollar terms, $300 billion worth of liabilities for this company. And when you're talking about all of those being impaired or partially impaired, that's a really, really big deal because of just how the, the banking sector works. And we can get into fractional reserve banking and, and how these the impairment of these liabilities kind of cascades into the rest of the economies. I don't want to cover that right now because I want to mm-hmm. kind of give you some more information on just Evergrande itself. Mm-hmm. But that's a imp- very, very important piece of all of this is just the sheer size of these liabilities. When you talk about real estate, a lot of the times you want to you want to also cover whether something is securitized or not. And what we mean by that is, you know, you might have $10 worth of debt, but it's not backed by anything. But in mm-hmm. real estate, a lot of the times it is backed by something tangible. So like if you default on your house, there's still a house there that the bank can come in and take. Now, they might not capture the full market value because maybe there's impairment on the, the quality of the house and things like that. So they might not capture the full amount. When we look at that debt for Evergrande, this was the statistic that really kind of caught my attention as just being like mind blowing. They have 1.4 million properties, Mm. 1.4 million properties that are committed right now that are in like a pre-sale liability phase. (laughs) 1.4 million. This, This adds up to $202 billion worth of liability that's in this quasi finished state, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're not talking about real estate. That's the complete with a bow tie on it. You're talking about like real estate. That's like partially made like an apartment building. That's just like halfway done. Mm-hmm. So when you have all these investors and you've got 70,000 people that have like investment interests in this company as far as this particular, all these properties that I'm talking about that are probably furious. I think you're starting to see some of the news reports where these people are literally sitting outside the the headquarters of the management of Evergrande and they're like not letting the people leave. And it's, it's starting to turn into some social unrest in very specific areas within China. And this is something that the CCP pays very close attention to because they don't like any type of social unrest and they don't like these types of situations uh, percolating up too much. So I think that that's an important piece of the puzzle to kind of keep in the back of your mind when we're talking about this this number that everybody's throwing around, which is the $300 billion of, of liabilities, with $202 billion of that being pre-sale liabilities of partially completed properties. Mm. I, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. One other thing that I want to highlight, Jimmy, is just the... Uh, the high yield, the debt, the junk bond market over in Mm. China. Mm. So this company alone accounts for 16% of all outstanding notes in the junk bond market within China. Wow. And there's, you know, there's talks of this just being completely impaired across Mm. the board. So what does that mean for all the, uh, all the banks that are then tied to this, all the suppliers that are, you know, tied to this, it gets into just, you know, this can, you know, everyone talks about contagion and how it can spread. And I would Mm. tell you that like, these are some of the things that when you have a company of this size and you have this much impairment on their balance sheet, this is how these things get, get started. If there's not some type of response policy response by government officials very quickly. And 
with a lot of magnitude. This is going to this is going to require a lot of debasement of their currency in order to step in and, and stop the cascading impacts that are likely to occur. And how much are we talking about there? Like, what would it take for you know Evergrande to be bailed out, basically? Well, I I kind of suspect what you're going to see is mm-hmm. right now. This is a really important part. So in China right now, they've got this this policy that they're uh, trying to promote called common prosperity. Mm. Okay. And they're trying to deter excessive risk taking. Mm. And another important part to all this is 70% of household net worth inside of China is real estate. (laughs) 70% of the, of the common person. So if you lined up everybody, their net worth is comprised 70% of, of real estate. So, China, just from the policy standpoint, the CCP is trying to ensure that excessive risk taking is not happening, that the whole billionaire class, I mean, everyone knows the story with Jack Ma and what they basically did to him. And I think they're looking at other billionaires within China and they're trying to diminish that influence that so many of them were starting to have there in the past decade. The CCP does not like that. They don't want somebody else competing with their authority. And this is just another example of them trying to make an example out of those influencers and those people that are well known within China. So you've got this really weird dynamic going on where they want they don't want any business to be too big to fail. They want the uh, people responsible for taking on all this excess you know, leverage and irresponsibility in the marketplace to be examples to the public that this is not what you do. But at the same time, they want to not compromise their entire economy within China by something of this magnitude, having this cascading impact into the rest of the economy. So they're, they're trying to have it both ways. And unfortunately, I don't think they're going to get it both ways. And they're going to have to step in and, and provide a lot of relief to this impairment that's obviously playing out in real time right now. So how do they do it? And that gets to the root of of your original question. Mm -hmm. I think they're going to be doing it through a lot of restructuring. I think they're going to be doing it through a lot of restructuring at maybe the second tier level. So like Evergrande, like they're going to, you know, I think they're going to try to make an example out of them, Mm -hmm. but they're probably going to provide a lot of relief to the second tier, third tier participants that are being affected by that cascading impairment that's happening at the top level within the Evergrande business structure. Mm. But, you know, who knows? These things have an ability, especially at this size, to just kind of unravel themselves really quickly in in, in kind of directions that maybe you're just not expecting. I mean, it's like a dam bursting open. So, Mm. like, you're trying to predict where that water is going to go next. (laughs) In some ways, it's really obvious, but in other ways, it might not be obvious. Well, so you mentioned that they ha- they are 16% of the junk bond market. What sort of yield were, were the Evergrande bonds like yielding before, you know, all this happened? And what is it like right now? I'm sure they're not paying out their coupons or whatever, but so, what, what is it? So they've stopped payments on all mm-hmm. coupons at this mm-hmm. at this time. So what they're trying to offer, and this is as of yesterday that I read that they are trying to go to, they're trying to, to offer the, the properties that are finished 
at severe discounts so that they can generate some type of cash flow so that they can stay in business. So their housing units, they're offering at a 28% discount to what they were previously trying to sell them out. Office space is they're trying to discount at 46% and then stores and parking units at 52% discounts to what they, the original prices were. This is like a last ditch effort for them to try to just generate some type of cash flow to sustain operations. And the, the concern that this is going to get into is all the creditors and the, uh, the, the tangential participants in this mm. are it's creating havoc for the sale of property. Like, hey, we've got to get this stuff off our books immediately, which then puts an abundance of supply into the market, which is then just going to collapse prices even more. So home prices in China just in August alone were down 20% wow. uh, from where they were a year earlier. New land sales have crashed by 90% in August. So you're starting to see like similar to like what we saw back in 2007 here in the US with the uh, real estate bubble and, and how it crashed. You're kind of starting to see very similar dynamics playing out right now in China. And I think that's probably why you have a lot of people comparing this to a Lehman type event. It's because mm. there's so many parallels to the real estate bubble that was here in the US is now playing out in China right now in real time. Uh, you, you asked about yield spreads. So the yield spreads for junk bond in China as a whole at the start of the year was at 7.5%. Mm -hmm. Today, it's at 14%. And for people that aren't intimately familiar with bonds, if, if the yields are going higher, that means the prices are going down. And if, mm -hmm. they're, if they're doubling in yield, they're going down a lot, like mm -hmm. dramatically. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty, that's an intense figure for junk bond to, to uh, collectively across the whole country to go from seven and a half percent up to 14% in what would be eight months time frame. So this is all of the junk bonds in China have gone from 7% yield to 14% you're saying? Yeah, junk bonds, yes. Wow. And like, just to give a comparison, like in the US, like, you know, what's considered a junk bond in the US? So, I mean, you're getting into, when it gets into the junk categorization, mm -hmm. you're getting into, I, I want to say the figures are like the probability of default is higher than like three or 5% or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, and this gets into ratings agencies stepping in and, and classifying it in that type of probability of default. Mm -hmm. And Evergrande is obviously in that situation right now where there's a very high probability way above those, those percentages of default. So yeah, if it, if it fits into that category, then it's listed as junk bond. And those yields are significantly higher than what you're seeing anywhere else in the world. But I would caveat that with, so are the, the government issued debt in China typically has a higher yield than other parts of the world too. In fact, China I would say has some of the highest interest rates in the world right now. And, and that's not, people that hear that might say, well, that's a great thing. Well, it's, it's more... It's a higher yield because it's considered higher risk compared to other parts of the world. Mm. And like, especially in the US, there's like no yield almost anywhere. So this would seem to be like sort of like a blip in the matrix. Something is really, really wrong there. Well, so if I was going to describe it, I would say maybe China isn't necessarily playing the debasement game, the fiat debasement game, like everybody else in the world right now. When you look at how the, the yuan has kind of performed over the last year, it's been pretty flat to the dollar. So like it's down a little bit. I want to say it's gone from like 6.75 to like 6.5, which 
for the last year, it's that's pretty that's pretty flat. I would describe mm-hmm. it as pretty flat. But they're not pumping. They're not doing the measures that you're seeing here in the U.S. or in Europe as far as the debasement. How aggressive they're debasing their currency by using things like quantitative easing, and definitely not UBI like you're seeing here in the states and other places. So maybe that's the reason why you're seeing this tightening happening over there. But it's kind of hard to just simplify without me kind of digging into a lot of the stats and figures and, and having a better analysis for you. Mm. Well, it is kind of crazy, but like, can you give us an idea of like what amount of leverage Evergrande was, you know, engaging in? Because, you know, real estate, you typically think, okay, well, I'm paying, you know, 20% down for my house. So you're really getting about 5x leverage. Like, were they going much more beyond that? And like, why is it like, why are they in so much debt? And what's, why is it so in trouble? Well, I think in general, you just, and, and I don't have the, the, the stat in front of me to kind of answer your question, but in general terms, I would tell you that back, I know back in, in 2010 timeframe, the Chinese government was concerned about how much leverage people were taking on real estate. And so what they actually did is they started requiring higher down payments for real estate. After the market crashed, actually, that would have been before 2010. This is like before the 2008, 2009 crash that they were taking some of these measures. After that, they provided relief. After everybody got you know underwater, they provided relief and re- reduced some of those measures, which then dropped those requirements because everybody was in so much trouble with the, with the drop in the price of the real estate. I'm not quite sure whether that was something similar that's playing out in the last couple of years with China or not. That would be something that I have to go back and research. But I guess my point is the Chinese government has done things like that to try to reduce this excessive risk taking that they know is taking place in the marketplace. From a cultural standpoint, people in China look at investments in a little bit different way than maybe here in the U.S., they love real estate, and it goes back to the stat that I was showing that I was telling you earlier, where seventy mm-hmm. percent of the household net worth is based in real estate. It's something tangible. It's something they can all understand, and it's something that they continue to just buy more real estate because the prices have tended to just keep going up, mm-hmm. which doesn't prevent or, or de-risk that behavior. So. Right now you have that. Everybody's gone out on the curve as far as they can. They're borrowing money. When you look at Evergrande, like they're, they have financing arms within their, their company. Something that I, that I also found interesting about this particular company, they have other sectors, like they've got sports, automotive, mm-hmm. tourism, health, media, finance, food. <laughs> they've got all these other sectors within the company that are so outside of their, what I would describe as their circle of competence. And right now, the company's trying to sell some of these different sectors within their their company with zero luck to date. Mm. Mm. So, I know I went off on a little bit of a tangent there. But there's well, a- well, so that that part is really interesting to me because, like, as far as I can tell, with this company, they kind of knew this was coming. That they were all leveraged on real estate. And a few years ago, it seems that they tried to diversify out of real estate as a way to reduce risk, but it seems to have not really done very much. It's kind of like Google. We know that their main you know, revenue source is advertising. They've been trying to diversify out of it forever, but they can't seem to. And this is the same thing that seems to have happened to Evergrande. 
Well, when you're dealing with a company that is this size, and you're talking about just from like a revenue standpoint, there are about 80 billion in revenue on an annualized basis, just how big this is. It's the equivalent of trying to steer an ocean liner versus trying to steer like a speedboat. Hmm. And so when the market is getting, when they're over levered and they have all these operational practices in place with 123,000 employees, right? And they're, hmm. they're deep in this sector, trying to steer that ocean liner away from the, the big giant rock that's in front of them right, is way harder to do than if you're some small $50 million agile business. Mm. So they're kind of caught in the situation that their sheer size and then just the competitive nature of this particular space. And then the decades long, just saturation of, of demand for real estate without fundamental analysis or basis behind it, just like an emotional need to buy more real estate without really fully understanding the actual demand that will continue to flow into it, puts you in this situation where you're extremely precarious and you're not able to really kind of get away from it. And I think that's the kind of the situation that they're in right now. Mm. And I, I mean, there's going to have to be some type of government response or involvement in order to mitigate the amount of impairment that's on the horizon for them. Hmm. Yeah, what I found really interesting, like in studying this a little bit is, at least in China right now, second homes outnumber first homes, like in sales, which is kind of crazy. Right? It's crazy. Like, <laughs> and then even third homes are close to the level of first homes. This is how much people in China really want real estate is that like it really is an investment vehicle for them and you know like like a few years ago they had all these stories on like these ghost cities with you know lots and lots of apartments and like everyone in the west is thinking who the hell is buying these empty apartments that no one's actually using well it was in a way like a roundabout way for a lot of chinese people to store value because they really didn't have they i mean they, culturally this seems to be the way that they really like storing value yes and it goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier. It was just like culturally, this is in high demand and it's continued to be in high demand for years and years. And when you look at, so like what, what creates that desire for something like this? Hmm. If interest rates keep going down, right, in general, and we're not talking about the junk bond interest rates. We're talking about like just regular interest rates, your mm -hmm. stable government issued debt. Mm. These interest rates for decades have trended down, mm. right? And if that's the case, that interest rates continue to trend down, well, the value of anything that's equity-based, real estate included, goes up. Mm. It's just that simple. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about how culturally there's been trust placed in buying real estate as an investment, it's because the price just has continued to go up and up for decades. And so it's like, well, this is a sure thing. It might have a little bit of variance in, you know, the year to year, but in the longer trend, the price is just going to keep going up. So let me just buy another property and another property. Mm. But then you you get to a point where there's so much demand to buy it, but there's no one to, to rent the additional property to, <laughs> right? And I think that that's kind of the reality that's starting to play out in China right now. Mm. And people have been talking about this, Jimmy, we've been talking about this for literally a decade, 
Mm. Right. And so maybe right now, for whatever reason, you've just kind of reached that saturation point where there's just nobody renting these properties that everybody's, you know, wanting to own and that reality starting to set in. So mm. it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And, you know, they also have this long term demographic trend where they did have the one child policy for a long time. I believe you can have two or three children now. Like that seems to have affected the, the demand for real estate because the population is not necessarily growing that fast or at all. Yeah. And I, and I would have to do a whole lot more research on that particular topic to talk to it intelligently. But I know that people of our generation and maybe a little bit younger were born with no brothers and sisters, right? And so they're the ones that are in the market today buying these properties. And the change in the policy probably won't really have impacts. I would suspect it wouldn't have impacts for maybe another decade or two. Mm. But I don't know. I haven't really done that analysis. To well, I, it's all over East Asia is, you know, the really, really low birth rates. I think Japan and Korea definitely have insanely low birth rates, this like something like 1.4 or less per woman. Generally, it's considered like a point of no return once you get under like 1.8 or something like that. I I don't know exactly the number for China, but it's got to be very low because of the one child policy and so on. And, you know, you got all this real estate, like you said, that's just sort of sitting out there that no one really has, you know, like is renting. I mean, you could rent it out to people, but then you're probably not getting the return that you need if you're renting it out to somebody that's extremely poor and so on. Hey, going back to a point that I was talking about earlier, mm-hmm. as far as China not playing the debasement game with their fiat mm-hmm. currency as strongly as other central banks. So I pulled up a chart. This is from the Yardini research They published, this is like automatically generated from, I don't know where they're pulling the data sources from, but if you just type in Yardini Research Global Central Bank Balance Sheet, you'll Mm -hmm. get this chart that comes up. It's like one of the first things that'll come up on Google. And you're able to see how the Fed versus the ECB versus the Bank of Japan versus the People's Bank of China, how those four central banks are debasing their currency based on the, the growth in their balance sheet relative to each other. And when I'm looking at this chart, you can clearly see that the People's Bank of China is debasing their currency the least compared Mm -hmm. to the other three central banks. So when we think about fiat currency and we think about how it's a it's a game of relativity between the other currencies, because everybody's debasing. Right. There's no (laughs) there's no peg anywhere in the world to be found except for in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at how they're debasing relative to each other. It's very clear that the People's Bank of China is running the tightest policy relative to the others. And so where would we expect to see difficulties in an economy first based on that action? Well, you would expect to see it in China first because they're the ones who aren't playing the debasement game the most aggressively. This should make no surprise to anybody that this that you would start seeing these breaks in the fractional reserve system first in China based on those policy actions, in in my humble opinion. Mm. Yeah, and they do have probably the tightest monetary policy, and we're seeing the cracks a little sooner because it's not as loose as other places. So they do seem to be indicating, at least, you know, from the stories that I've read, 
that some of them are, uh, or some, uh, I think there was a People's Daily newspaper or something like that, that was basically saying, you know, this is not as contagious as people think, that we could afford to let Evergrande go bankrupt and it will be fine. Do you believe that? Or is that sort of like a spin to keep confidence in the markets? What's the deal there? I think the latter. Yeah. Mm. I don't think that when you're talking to something of this size, Hmm. and more importantly, you're talking about a system that is based on promises. Mm. The fractional reserve system with unbacked currency globally is a system that's based on promises that will grow in size until they melt down. And when they melt down, it happens quickly and it happens in this cascading impact where You know, because at the end of the day, it's all about counterparty risk in a system that's designed like this. So if I make a promise with you, and when I say the word promise, I'm talking about credit. So Mm -hmm. if I make a promise with you that I'm going to pay you a hundred bucks, right? You list that as an asset on your balance sheet and I list it as a liability on mine. Mm -hmm. But then you now have the capacity to take that asset and use it as leverage to maybe buy a property or to buy an asset that turns into another promise between you and another counterparty, right? Mm-hmm. That is a liability for you and an asset for them. So if if that asset that's getting listed mark to market on somebody's balance sheet starts to become impaired, which is happening here on the Evergrande balance sheet, that, that what they're listing these properties values as, and you're seeing that in the sales where there's selling their uh, stores and their offices for a 50% discount, that is impairment on that balance sheet, which then that somebody else is listing as an asset at full price. Mm. So when that gets readjusted to the price that it's actually being sold for, that has a cascading impact down the chain through the whole supply chain of all these people that work in contracting and are supplying the cement. And I mean, you have to think about that whole supply chain and the disruption that's happening because of the way that the system works in a fractional reserve, promissory credit-based kind of way. Well, we're kind of seeing malinvestment playing out in real time, right? Like, because you got like a ton of unfinished properties that might not ever get finished or, you know, need a government bailout to get finished. And we've been seeing this for years with like these empty ghost apartments and so on. And it seems like, you know, there's no more real demand for it, or it's kind of going in a weird direction where the cracks are starting to show as a result of all of this investment in real estate that maybe shouldn't have gone there. Yeah. I think people just, at the end of the day, people need to keep an eye on it. They need to continue to assess it. I know the Chinese equity market has been in a downtrend for for a long time. We have on our site, we have an analytics tool that we uh, sell. And then we have this momentum tracker that mm. keeps track of just positive trends and, and negative trends. And for on our site, China China ETFs have been in a downtrend negative status for probably six months now, six mm. to seven months, where everything else in the entire global economy is bright green <laughs> as far as momentum, <laughs> momentum trends go. So I've always just kind of found that to be kind of interesting and didn't really kind of add up. Why is China really struggling where the literally the rest rest of the planet is doing incredibly well mm. from an equity standpoint? And now when this popped up, I was kind of like, oh, well, that's interesting. Now let's kind of see how the next quarter or two plays out because I kind of suspect it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. But that's only going to be true if you don't have some type of 
massive government intervention that could play out. I mean, it could play out tomorrow for all we know. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the trouble of dealing with markets today is they are so manipulated. More importantly, it's expected that they're going to be manipulated. (laughs) Right. And so if that's the markets we're dealing with, we're not really dealing with free and open markets for all intents and purposes. If that's the environment that we're working with on a global level, you can't sit here and say, oh, this is going to be really bad, Jimmy. This is going to be terrible. Right. I can't Mm -hmm. say that. Because mm. I don't know that whether the CCP is going to step in mm. and the Chinese central bank is going to step in and reliquidate all of this, buy all this up at the mark to market price and just recapitalize everything. They might mm. do that. They, they could do that. Mm. So it's really hard to for anybody and anybody that would come out and say, oh, this is this is going to be like Lehman. It mm. could. It could be like Lehman. But. I think based on just how everybody in the, in the global economy is acting right now in a way that they just manipulate everything, that's a really bold statement to say, and I'm not willing to say it, but I do mm. think that it has the potential to go in that direction if it goes unchecked. Mm. Well, so going backwards a little bit, how did coronavirus sort of like affect Evergrande? Because you know, obviously there was a global economic shutdown and everything, and China obviously was a big player in this and you know they shut down a little earlier than everybody else did that just sort of like accelerate the inevitable or was it sort of like a systemic shock uh, to Evergrande that that they weren't prepared to handle you know i'm not sure i can comment on that mm-hmm. one way or the other i would suspect that the impacts that we've seen in covid and i'm relating it back to what i do know which is mm-hmm. here in the us there is very few businesses that were unaffected by covid If you were a business that had just untangible assets, like your whole business model was based on untangible assets, they were able to weather that uh, a whole lot easier than companies that do have a lot of tangible assets on their balance sheet or their Mm. capital intensive type businesses. Mm. So when I look at a company like this, and it's extremely capital intensive, the PPE on a company like this, I can't even imagine what it would be. I would suspect that it's having some some major impacts due to COVID because when you look at COVID, I mean, look at the look at the prices of everything right now. Mm. We're starting to see inflation, mm. and if you're looking at it from a relative basis, we're seeing extreme inflation percentage wise, mm. where you know the inflation's up 400 percent from where it was before. Mm. You know, going from like one percent to four percent is is how I'm describing that. That's mm. a massive shift in the expectations of the cost of tangible items. And so when you look at a company like this that has so much CapEx Mm. to replenish, like, can you imagine the depreciation that happens on a company like this on an annualized basis based on how much property, plant, and equipment they have? It's massive. So if you're replacing that and you now have inflationary impacts because of all those tangible things, Mm. you have to suspect that the impacts are probably massive for these types of businesses that have massive CapEx. Yeah, this, I mean, just thinking about even lumber, like, you know, oh, yeah. we, we, we know that that went through the roof and they already got paid for the real estate that they were going to develop. And then the costs go up. Obviously, it's going to impact them. Yes. Yeah. 
Wow. Crazy. Well, so what do you think the Chinese government does? Like, is it a straight bailout? Do they buy these things straight on the market for mark to market price, like you said? Or I mean, do they do something like more trickier, like the Fed does, where they'll give you a loan for those assets at full value? Or like, what do you think happens in terms of a potential bailout here? So Xi Jinping is the mm-hmm. third richest person in China, which last year his net worth was like $30 billion. He's the founder of Evergrande. Mm. So in China, he is a major figure, influencer of wealth and the antithesis of common prosperity. We're going mm. back to the term that of their slogan that they're trying to promote over there. Mm. So I think... From the Chinese government's standpoint, they probably want to make an example out of this guy. Mm -hmm. They probably want to cause pain and disruption to him personally and this brand of excessive risk taking. Mm. But they've got to also make sure that it doesn't cascade into the rest of their economy. I think their response is going to be one that's very calculated in that they're trying to achieve that destruction of that brand in in him personally, Mm. while also trying to make sure that the 70,000 people that had investments in this are penalized, but not destroyed. Mm. (laughs) And I think that they obviously want to make sure that whatever type of relief that they provide through providing liquidity into their economy is done in a way that doesn't look like they're rescuing anything, but also like stopping it. So what does that look like? You know, I can't really kind of get into the nuances of what it is just by by my Mm -hmm. sheer lack of understanding of of all the different key players that are underneath of Evergrande. But I suspect that the response you're going to see is going to be kind of along those lines. Mm. Well, so that is very Asian, by the way, like just sort of like punish one person and they get, you know, jail time, they, you know, get all their wealth taken away or, or whatever. And then everything else sort of like gets rescued behind the scenes while saving face, something like that. And that's what you're suspecting is what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, So let's talk a little more globally. How does this affect everybody else in the world? Because, you know, say that they do some sort of bailout like this, where it's sort of like under the radar, they still punish the CEO of Evergrande, maybe, you know, like, you know, make sure that there's no social unrest by sort of like making, uh, making all of the investors whole somehow while still punishing the company itself. Like, how does that affect everybody else in the world? Do they like, is there sort of a lot of foreign exposure to Evergrande bonds or stock or anything like that? Yeah, there is. And I think that that's going to be very difficult for them to manage is all that foreign investment capital that has assisted in creating this company and where those, where those equities lie and where the owners of that debt lie. I think another concern that might make this a way bigger deal and maybe outside of the CCP's ability to control, it goes back to the idea of the the competition that was happening in this particular space. So if they're going to basically reorganize all this debt and reorganize all this equity that exists within this company to the, I mean, they have to move it over to these other competitors, which would be this Vanke and Country Garden, which are the only two companies within China that could really kind of handle the breadth of Mm -hmm. property that they're trying to reorganize. If those two companies, if Vanke and Country Garden have similar problems, Mm. which I think could be a very real possibility here, 
Hmm. Now you're not just dealing with Evergrande, you're actually dealing with two other companies for a total of three companies that, that encompass uh, what I would guess is 80 to 90% of the of all real estate development in the entire country. Wow. And if, if that's the case, now they've got a whole different set of problems on their hands that I don't know how you would really kind of be able to, to manage that fallout mm. in a way that it doesn't spill into international markets. Mm. So that's the concern, in my personal opinion, is are those other two competitors in a similar situation, but only a couple months behind Evergrande, or are they much more healthy in, in their, you know, in their current standing? And you know what? I don't believe, I'm sorry. I just don't believe whatever numbers are actually being displayed on whatever financial reports that any of these companies are reporting right now, mm. because you just don't know what the ground truth is. I think the the way you're going to find out is just through the news cycle and just kind of see, kind of seeing what plays out next. Mm. Yeah, because they're not motivated to report the real numbers. They'll put like the best spin they possibly can and, you know, make it seem like they're ready to be solvent and, you know, keep the confidence and so on. But this does seem to be playing out very similarly to 2008, where obviously, you know, you know, the government let some fail. And then they saw that it was kind of going to spread through everything. So they bailed out everybody. Do you see something similar happening in China? I think you kind of hinted at that. Maybe let Evergrande fail, but then the other two get in trouble and then like sort of bail them out like and uh, to, uh, you know, contain the contagion or something to that effect. Yeah. And I think that that's that's where everybody that's comparing this to Lehman is mm-hmm. is doing it because like you correctly described there at first when Lehman was failing, the, the U.S. government was like, all right, well, sorry for all your investors. And same with Bear Stearns, like, uh, I'm sorry, you guys are just going to you're going to lose everything. It's completely impaired. Well, that played out. And if I remember right, this was probably in the uh, springtime frame of mm-hmm. 2008. And so as that played out, you had months that went by, basically two quarters that went by where it was kind of like, okay, is there other companies? Is this worse <laughs> than what? And then all of a sudden, it just like this, the floodgates let loose six months to like nine months later. And I can't remember my timing all that well, but I think that's about right. And so yeah. that, that's the concern here is, is let's say the CCP says, all right, well, you guys were, were not responsible. You're not living up to this common prosperity initiative that we have going on. So you're going to lose everything. Mm. And then maybe a quarter or two later, maybe then you have Country Garden that then runs into issues that are very similar to Evergrande. And then the whole thing plays out. That is a scenario that I could see happening. It's very hard to know whether based on the, the facts we understand today, whether that's what's actually playing out. But I think that that's the concern for anybody who lived through the 2008 crisis here in the U.S., <laughs> that that's maybe what's playing out in China right now. Yeah. Uh, and what was crazy about 2008 was it felt local, right? It was sort of like the subprime mortgage stuff within the U.S. only, yet somehow it spread all over the world where, you know, like you had people in Australia calling it like the great financial crisis, like they have like an acronym for it and everything. Like it spread absolutely everywhere off of you know, essentially what was a domestic problem, you know, and this seems to be very similar in that regard. Is it possible to have something like a great recession or something to that effect on a global scale as a result of something like this? It's definitely possible. But again, it it just goes back to the reaction of the policymakers, the central bankers, and how much liquidity they're providing back into the economy. The speed at which they act, the timing of which they act, the magnitude of printing 
mm. are all like the, the big key ingredients to whether this can be contained mm. or, you know, or else it just all breaks loose. Mm. When you look at the 2008, 2009 crisis, I think you were back, at least in the equity markets, everything was kind of back to normal within a three or four year period of time. Like they, they stepped in with a lot of printing and a lot of debasement to recapitalize everything and, and put that liquidity back into the system and then happened quickly. Now, in the March 2020 uh, COVID drop, I would argue <laughs> it was basically 2008, 2009 times 10 because the speed at which the bounce happened for those, for, for the top capitalized companies in the world was quick. Mm. Where I think you're starting to see this divergence in the real economy is for your small businesses, they, they're still just obliterated, right? Like mm. that money is not, or that, that liquidity of fiat is not trickling down into the real economy where most small businesses lie. Mm. And it's just getting sucked into the highest capitalized companies. And so like all your stock indexes track the top 50 companies or the top 100 companies in the world. So if you're if you're thinking that these actions by these policymakers are fixing the economy or or bringing it back to normalcy, it's not. The more that they manipulate the economy, I think the more you're going to see this divergence where what was great for large cap businesses and was bad for small cap businesses is going to slowly evolve into it's still great for large cap businesses. But now your mid cap and small cap businesses are getting destroyed mm. and you're, you're polarizing all, all of the, you're, you're, you're basically consolidating enterprise on a global mm. scale by mm. these actions. And I think that's the long-term impact of them continuing to just manipulate the fiat currency over and over and over again. So I think what you're saying is, you know, capital essentially goes towards only a few players as, you know, they, they're sort of like proven to be a little bit more stable over the long term, have, have a better store of value property and therefore, you know, have some backing of government in case they are too big to fail, they'll, they'll get bailed out and so on. That seems to be where capital is flowing. And it, that in turn screws over small and medium sized businesses. Absolutely. Wow. That's, yeah. that's, that's the trend that is not letting up. In fact, that's accelerating, right? Mm. And as they continue to do more manipulation, I think you're just going to have more of that, but it's just going to be amplified. Yeah. Well, that brings up sort of like an interesting dynamic that's happening in the world today, which is that, you know, stores of value like real estate and stock, they have some fragility there that I don't think is really appreciated by the people that are storing value there. Like, you know, obviously people in China trust real estate a lot more. I think people in the US maybe trust stocks a little bit more or something to that effect. But there's a systemic fragility to putting all of this capital in because you get a lot of malinvestment and sort of like weird shenanigans as a result that require some sort of like Fed bailout or, you know, central bank bailout. Well, so the thing that I think most participants in the market are failing to recognize mm. is through the manipulation, which is mostly happening in the bond market, mm. you're compressing yields lower and lower down mm. to nothing. And it's and what it's doing is it's causing all the prices of anything that's equity based to go to the moon. Mm. When this 
for your common investor, they're just looking at it and they're saying, oh, well, the price just keeps going up. Like, why would I ever sell, right? If the government's going to step in and just recapitalize things and it's going to be back to where it was within a year and maybe even higher, why in the world would I ever de-risk myself? And I think what they're failing to account for is if you have a sound money that can enter the fold and compete with this debauchery, mm. you start to get in a situation where the way that equity and debt is priced starts to invert itself and starts to flip itself on its head, mm. right? And when you think about, well, what would cause, like, what's the limitation of, of them to keep doing this? And I think the limitation is once you start trying to compress those yields below 0% in nominal terms, because in real terms, they're already negative in, in mm. almost everywhere in the world, mm -hmm. right? But in nominal terms, you're still having positive and slightly positive rate. Once they get so, once they, once they push the power levers to ludicrous speed, <laughs> right? And you're, you're literally trying to take the nominal yields negative. I think the rest of the world starts saying, hold on a second. Like mm. you can't, you can't force me to enter an agreement that guarantees the loss of my capital. Cause that's mm -hmm. what those agreements are at that point. Like mm -hmm. I guarantee you, I will give you back less money, Jim. Like, <laughs> I think, I think you give me a hundred bucks. I guarantee you I'll give you 97 back. Like, I think that's the point where the market really starts to take a, a much closer look at something like Bitcoin. Mm. And because now think about it. Like if this thing has, if it can't be debased, now, all of a sudden, you, you start getting different interest rates. Mm. You start getting different capitalization rates on equity. So instead of equity being priced based on nothing percent yields and the mm -hmm. prices being to the moon, and you start having this thing that's producing maybe a 5%, requiring a 5% interest or a 7% interest to borrow it. And I, th I think the numbers actually might be higher than that when we start mm -hmm. getting into a hyper-Bitcoinization. Now, all of a sudden, the prices, these... These insane multiples that are put on equity start getting way different, way, way, way different <laughs> multiples. Mm. You know, you go to a 10% interest rate, you're, you're now, you have to have something that's giving you a better than 10 PE mm. to account for that risk, mm. right? And I know that that's a pretty high number for anybody to possibly imagine right now, but you know, I'll tell or you even 10% dividends, right? Like that was actually normal back in like 1910 or something to that effect. And it's kind of crazy. When you look at where we're at, mm. like even a 3% interest rate or a 4% interest rate seems crazy. But mm. I mean, we're getting inflation prints for the, like the last two quarters of four and 5%. So I'm looking at, the, I'm looking at the fixed income market and I'm saying, when do they realize that they're standing there with no clothes on. Like mm. how in the world can interest rates be 200 basis points lower mm -hmm. than inflation? Mm -hmm. And this and this is the manipulated inflation, right? <laughs> like this isn't even like the, the, I would argue your inflation is your, you know, like Lynn Alden and Michael Saylor. Mm -hmm. I think it's your M2, the, the growth rate, your CAGR, mm -hmm. your compound mm -hmm. annual growth rate on your M2 money supply. I think that's your real inflation rate. Mm. And so if you're using that, you're in double digits. And meanwhile, you have the 10-year treasury at like, what, 1.3%? I mean, it's crazy mm -hmm. talk. It's crazy mm -hmm. talk.
Well, I mean, that kind of shows you the leverage of the system because the fact that people are investing in these things at all means that they're getting insane amounts of leverage in order to basically make money on the spread, which essentially puts more money into the system and so on. Yep. Yeah. Wow. All right. So how does Bitcoin sort of change the situation, if at all, in the coming months as you know, I like maybe there's a bailout of Evergrande, maybe it's allowed to fail, maybe there's contagion, maybe there's not. What do you think Bitcoin does during this time? Well, so if you go into a, a big giant liquidation event where you have contagion on a global scale, mm-hmm. the last time we saw this was March of 2020 through the mm-hmm. COVID crisis. You saw that scenario play out in real mm-hmm. time where you just had impairment happening, mm-hmm. where credit, all the promises were broken. Mm-hmm. And most of that was just due to the supply demand shocks that were happening in the commodities market and everybody reassessing like how much demand they were expecting in the coming you know six months to a year. And it was drastically mispriced compared to what was you know the expectation at the start of the year. And that was obvious. And so the whole market went into this big giant impairment scenario because all the promises that were previously constructed, all the credit that was previously constructed before COVID were based on assumptions that we weren't going into a global pandemic. Mm. So when that when the market came to the realization we're going into a global pandemic and this is going to be, you know, all these assumptions need to be reassessed. That's when you got this cascading just blow up of the credit and the promises that were in the system. And so everybody has to run when you have impairment of credit, everybody has to run to real units, real Mm. monetary baseline fiat units. Mm. And when you look at the the quote unquote money in the system, you know, two thirds of it, I don't know what the actual stat would be, but it's a significant portion of the quote unquote money in the system is credit. It's promises. Mm-hmm. It's the scenario that I described before where like your asset is my liability, right? Mm-hmm. So if a, if a significant portion of that is these promises and the promises are getting broken, the only way you can adjudicate that counterparty risk is by actually coming up with monetary baseline fiat units to pay the, the counterparty, mm-hmm. right? So this is why everybody has to sell anything they've got that doesn't have counterparty risk. Or if it does have counterparty risk, they're trying to front run the other person. Mm. And so it's a race to fiat dollars. Mm. Everything gets sold off relative to the fiat dollars. That's what happened in March of 2020. Mm. So, and, and so Bitcoin went down during this. I think it was down, mm. what, 40, 50% during that, mm. that situation. And it's a short-term sell-off. Because everybody has to get dollars to mm. make good on their impairment in mm-hmm. other counterparty risk areas. Okay. Mm. So if we would go through another scenario like that in the global economy due to this Evergrande, which could happen, I don't know what the probabilities of that would be, but mm. let's just say it could happen and you get this big giant sell off and it happens quicker than the central bankers can react to it preemptively. You would see Bitcoin, I, w- I would suspect you'd see the Bitcoin price get penalized, very mm. similarly to what you saw in March of 2020, mm. simply because of the market cap size of Bitcoin relative to the rest of the economy and, and especially mm. relative to fiat currency in general. Mm. Bitcoin's a spec compared to fiat mm-hmm. currency around the world when you count mm. the euro, the dollar, the yen and all that. So. Yeah. So the price of Bitcoin could get penalized in the short term if something like that played out. If it's controlled and they they are able to 
you know, reorganize all this into the other companies and the other companies aren't over levered like Evergrande and, you know, then this would be a nothing event for Bitcoin. Mm. Yeah. So I think what you're saying is if there is sort of like a credit crunch event, then Bitcoin being sort of this very liquid asset would then get liquidated to some degree and suffer some fall. But you think that would be temporary and that it would soon go back because people will want this very nice asset that doesn't have all of these credit risks and so on. Absolutely. I would view an event like that as being a massive opportunity mm. because A, I'm not levered in Bitcoin in any kind of way, mm. right? I have no, I, I don't 10X leverage trade. I don't trade it, first mm -hmm. of all. I just mm -hmm. buy it long and I hold it. I don't ever sell it. Mm. And this situation would be an opportunity in the short term because I could buy more for my, <laughs> for my dollars, right? Everything's going on sale and everybody's running out of the store. They should be running into the store to buy as much as they possibly can because they were afforded an opportunity. Mm. So I would see it as a massive opportunity. And I, I would see it rebounding very similarly to like what we saw in the March 2020, where you were up 100% probably within, uh, I don't know, two months. If you, mm -hmm. if you were buying that sell-off, mm. I would see something very similar to that happening. And yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to take whatever free cash flows you got and you want to pump it into that opportunity that's being presented. And you just don't want to be levered so that, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, this is, this is my message for people that are playing in the lever game. You have no idea whether this Evergrande situation is going to blow up and cascade into equity markets, you know, on Monday morning, mm. right? And it could. And Bitcoin could be down 15%. And if you were levered long, congratulations, you just became a seller. Mm. Even though you have a long bias and that you think it's going higher, you just participated in the selling of Bitcoin because you were levered long. Mm. Right. So all, all leverage does is it speeds up time. Mm. And the example I like to use is like if you were playing a video game, right, and you're using leverage, all you're doing is you're speeding up the clock at how fast you you're playing the game. And if you make one little mistake, you're dead. Mm. Right. So there's no reason, especially when you look at the asymmetric trade of Bitcoin to mm. be levered mm. like you could have you could have a one percent position today, and, and I'm of the opinion you will completely protect your entire net worth with a one percent position in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be that right for this to be, to to have massive effects on your portfolio and just your position. Mm. Wow. Some really sobering stuff. And it's interesting how Bitcoin sort of motivates you to not participate in this fractional reserve banking slash leverage game that everyone else is playing in large part because it is kind of a very safe asset. So this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And I suspect we'll be like watching this for the next few months and seeing how much it spreads. And it might be nothing. It might be everything. We, we don't know. But regardless of that, where can people find you? Where can people contact you? I, I can be, we have a podcast, it's called We Study Billionaires. I do a Bitcoin show every Wednesday. I'm very active on Twitter, at Preston Pish, just my first and last name. 
And yeah, I'd love to interact with folks. And, and like you said, Jimmy, like this is something that I think is, I think the, the takeaway from this, this is something worth paying attention to. I think this could, this has the potential to be a really big deal. It's just going to really depend on, on how policymakers react to it and the speed and the magnitude at which they react to it. Mm. All right. Well, thank you, Preston. And yeah, we'll definitely be watching. Thanks, Jimmy. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of the podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin native financial services partner, learn more at Unchained.com. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Preston Pish can be found at at Preston Pish on Twitter and TheInvestorPodcast.com. Until next time, fiat de lenda est.